0: We're going to jump right in today, this morning, and uh, a new series that we started last week. So by way of uh, review, background, um, we typically at our gatherings on Sunday mornings, we go through books of the Bible. Uh, We are and have been currently in the series in the book of Acts and just been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this uh, great book. And we last week kind of stopped and paused, and we'll be getting back into that uh, in the few weeks to come. But we just decided to kind of pull back and focus on a certain grouping of topics that relate to the subject of the image of God. And the reason why we're going to do that, I'll show you the slide to kind of ask the question, why are we doing this? I'll kind of unpack that. Um, the reason are three, three of them. One, for clarity and comfort. We, in the book of Acts chapter 15, one of the things that we looked at last was there was this controversy that had arisen within the early church. And uh, it caused great trouble amongst the followers of Jesus. And rather than avoiding the circumstance in the situation, the church actually uh, addressed it, and it was able to bring some level of clarity and comfort to the people that were distressed. And we see that each of the subjects that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks um, really are the source, in my my opinion, of great anxiety and stress and angst for a lot of people in our world and our culture and maybe even in our church Today. So we want to address these um, because really at the end of the day, for the leaders, myself, pastors, teaching group at Calvary Slow, um, I want to be a good pastor. We want to be good shepherds um, for you guys, for those of you that might be wrestling and struggling, dealing with um, the subject matter that we'll be looking at. Second reason is for biblical faithfulness because at the end of the day, we believe that even though... These subjects that we'll be looking at, we looked at last week the subject of race, today we're looking at the subject of gender, next week the subject of sexuality, the week after that the subject of life, as some would say spanning from womb to tomb, everything in between, Um, each of these are deeply political. These are radically political hot topics, right? Yet, before they are political hot topics, they are also biblical. That The Bible actually addresses these things, it speaks a lot about these things. So we see these as not just simply trying to throw ourselves from the fray into the center of political you know, powder keg, but to say, wow, God actually has something to say about these things. There are scriptures, there's passages, there are narratives throughout scripture that are, are heavily laden with the subject matter that we'll be taking a look at. So the second reason is because we really wanted to be faithful to scripture. We want to be a community of people that are faithful as much as we can to living according to revelation of God. Uh, which is scripture, uh, God-breathed, inspired by God. The third one is for the sake of discipleship. Because look, at the end of the day, every one of us, we live in culture. We are influenced by culture. The hope is that we would be influencers in the midst of of culture. Um, That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a disciple of Christ. And the circumstances that confront us are all opportunities to be light to show forth the love of Christ in the midst of those cultural contexts. Um, Which means that we need to have our hearts and our minds, according to Romans chapter 12, renewed. So we allow scripture to reform and reshape and reorient our understanding of who God is. We allow our hearts to become softened to God, to say yes to God, to be obedient followers and disciples of Jesus. And so what that looks like, For us, then, is so that while we reshape and reorient our mind according to Scripture, we can then be good, faithful followers of Jesus in our culture, so that we don't have to be afraid of these subjects and these topics, no matter how politically incendiary they are. We can actually confront these things in a humble posture, in a way that brings forth both light and uh, truth, light and hope, light and life. Uh, light and heat, and rather than, than just heat, but also light, right? So that's the way that we see this. So we want to faithfully follow Jesus in our culture. Last thing I'll say before we jump in is, uh, and I'll make a disclaimer real quick. Um, at the bottom of the slide, you'll see that there is a little section there that says questions, uh, slido.com, and then there's a code right there. Um, what we're doing is trying something brand new. It's a service that if you go on your you know phone or whatever, your tablet, whatever you have, your device, you can actually just go to that website, slidoo.com, and then there's a code that you enter, and then that code will actually take you directly to this this event, uh, church service, whatever you want to call it. And you can actually uh, uh, put in questions that you would like to ask, or um, upvote questions that are already pre-existent, and uh, the hope is, is to create some context, I'm not confident that we'll have time today to answer some of those questions, I'll see what we're able to do, or... Um, I might even answer some of the questions that are already there um, in the context of the message that I'll be giving here today. So if you have any questions, if you want to add to that conversation or dialogue, uh, please feel free to do that as well or just upvote ones that are already there. And then finally, before we jump in, I want to do a little bit of a disclaimer because the subject that we're going to be looking at here today, there's a lot that could be said both uh, from secular sources as well as biblical sources, a lot that could be said. Um, I've spent like literally dozens of hours studying, reading, listening, praying, thinking, uh, investigating, researching uh, the subject matter for today, so there's a lot. I was talking with my wife about this the other day, and I'm like, I don't even know how to condense down everything that I've thought and learned and talked about, and looked at into like a 45-minute thing. So I realize that when we synthesize you know, mountains and mountains of information, uh, there are going to be some things that maybe for some of you, uh, you, you would wish I might address more. Some others of you, maybe less, whatever. Um, but the point of the matter is I'm not going to be able to address everything that pertains to the subject matter at hand. I'm going to do my best. Obviously, given within the time frame that we have together. And some have asked, you know, why not just do like a two or three week series? And there's some practical reasons for that. And first and foremost is oftentimes um, uh, attendance, church attendance. Like statistically, people come to church once every six weeks. Statistics. I'm not saying that that's who you guys and how you're represented, but statistics, one every four weeks, one every six weeks. That means if I break this down into two or three weeks, that means... uh, uh, you, you miss the flow, you miss what's happening whatnot. So I know you can always kind of follow up, but my, the idea is I want to try to do the best that I can to give as much information within uh, 45 minutes or so time frame as I can. So with that, you guys ready to jump in? Before we do, let me pray. So Holy Spirit, we uh, turn our hearts to you right now and we ask you that you would just open our minds, our hearts God, I, I can't speak on behalf of everybody, but um, I, I know in my mind um, the voices via Facebook, media, the arts, um, the, like a fire hose keep um, coming my way, our way. and God, at, at the end of the day, they, they, they oftentimes do not bring peace, shalom, satisfaction, rest, oftentimes just add to the confusion and contribute to the chaos. Um, God, what, what we want here today is a word from God to bring peace, and rest, clarity. And God, what we want today are hearts that are like good soil, that when the seed of your word lands upon our hearts, that it would be received and then begin to bear forth fruit. Because God, yours are the words of life. And so we submit and surrender our hearts, and we ask you, God, would you please shape our minds according to your word? We ask for these things in Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump in. Today we're going to be taking a look at the subject of the image of God as displayed in the subject of gender, more specifically looking at the idea of Uh, sexism, and so on and so forth as it plays out in culture at large. So I'm going to give you basically four main things that we'll be looking at. Just kind of think of these as tent pegs that uh, everything else will kind of be placed upon this. One, we'll take a look at the reality of sexism. Secondly, we'll take a look at the problem um, that I think the Bible addresses, the problem beneath the problem of sexism. Uh, Thirdly, we'll take a look at God and those who are voiceless and then thirdly, we'll finish with the subject of godly people or godly men and the voices. Before I jump in, I want to say one other final thing. Um, if you, yeah, there we go. This, thank you. Man, you're good job. Okay, I want to, I want to kind of reframe all of this in the context of, of a question. And the question that we're really trying to look at over these few weeks is really this. So what would our world look like if Christ was king um, and not these cultural idols of race, gender, sex, personal comfort, and or security? Um, Again, what would our world look like if Christ really was king? Now, we believe as followers of Jesus that Christ is definitely without question king. But what the church is, the church is a community of people that are saying, yes, Lord, yes, Jesus, be king over our actions, over our activities, over our words, over the way that we treat other people. And what would it look like if Christ truly was demonstrated as king in our cultural context, within our uh, church community and whatnot? and not some of these other cultural idols. So, for example, racism is a problem because underlying racism is an over-elevation of one race of, over, over, above another. Uh, the way the Bible would describe that is idolatry. So, for example, when one race basically elevates itself above any other race and says, we are the chosen ones, we are the great ones, we are the smart ones, we are the wise ones, we are the good-looking ones, whatever, there's a tendency to look down upon all other races. And the Bible's word for that is idolatry. It's the raising up, the elevating of something that God created that's good into a God-like position. And what happens is people suffer underneath the oppressiveness of uh, this form of idolatry. And you can go on and down and look at each one of these things that we'll be taking a look at actually for the most part, the reason why there are problems underlying each of these things is because Jesus is not displayed as king over all things. So the question is, uh, the claim of Christianity is that Jesus really is king, and those who follow him are proclaiming him, recognizing him as king, and what that does and it begins to transform and change the way that those communities of people live. So that's the question we're asking. What would our world look like if Christ was king and not the cultural idols of race, gender, sex, personal comfort, and security. So with that, let's begin to jump in and take a look at the subject, first of all, the reality of sexism. Sexism. So first of all, um, this is just a definition of, that I discovered on the Internet, on a Wikipedia or so something like that, of sexism, and it basically says this. Um, and again, I realize Merriam-Webster's might have some variations on this, but um, when one sex or gender has a feeling of superiority over the other, thus resulting in harm to the other sex by all means, mental, physical, and emotional, through conscious or unconscious efforts. So again, it's this idea that one sex sees itself, in this case obviously men, see themselves as superior, more powerful, more entitled over uh, the female sex. And so the tendency is to oppress or suppress or bring uh, crushing weight upon or expectations upon that other. So that's where we get the idea of sexism. So the reality is is that throughout much of history, women have been subjected to dehumanizing forces in a variety of ways. Throughout history, I mean, you can go back in history books for thousands of years ago and realize that women have been subjected to all variety and forms of oppression and suppression. Now, the tendency is, the tendency, I think, for our modern culture uh, is to basically break things down and to look at our culture, and say, well, our culture is so progressive, so got to figure it out, and all of these other cultures and ways of viewing women and their roles and all these other types of things are so uh, antiquated or oppressive or destructive. And what I would suggest to you is to learn from the lesson that C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis describes uh, there's a problem that oftentimes we people have. He describes it as chronological Snobbery. I love that phrase because basically saying the tendency is to look at the age in which we live and be like, ah, this is the progressive age. This is the age that's uh, accomplished uh, humanitarian efforts uh, to a degree of greatness. And all the other ancient cultures and civilizations are so backwards and so messed up and so dest- destructive. So here's a tendency that I want for us to think about because you can break history down. Again, I'm, I'm being very generalist generalize in this, you can think of it in terms of ancient, traditional, and, uh, and, and progressive, all right, modern culture, especially here in California, there's without question, we live in a, what we would describe as very uh, liberal slash progressive culture and society, but the reality is that ancient, traditional, and even yes, progressive culture, uh, the, basically they all have this claim. And the claim is, is that your value is derived or a female's value is derived by way of submission to whatever the cultural norm is. So in patriarchy, in ancient cultures and civilization, uh, it would be a woman's value and, 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 and you know placement in society is completely dependent upon her submission to the patriarchy. Meaning having lots of babies, uh, just simply submitting to whatever man Uh, or man role is in her life. She doesn't have a voice. She's completely submissive to the man that's in control of her. She has no rights outside of the man. And that's kind of like an ancient form. It's kind of what you would see oftentimes in the Bible. It's one of the reasons why there's a whole other point I'll I'll make on this in just a second, where oftentimes people look at the Bible and say, it's so regressive, it's so backwards, it's so destructive. We'll address that in a moment. But the tendency is to look at that and say, a woman's place was in the patriarchal system. Her job was just to bear kids, and that was about it. And then the tendency is to look at more traditional contexts, right? If you're wondering what more traditional is, just think of leave it to beaver. Mom has a, has a uh, what do you call it, an apron on. And she's just always making fresh baked cookies and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and fresh milk. So when the kids come home from school, they can just eat. And, and then she can basically be a doormat for dad for the rest of the day, even though that's not necessarily what happened in leave it to beaver. But you get the idea. Traditional, that she was subjective. Her place in culture and society was based upon her faithfulness or fidelity or submission to home life and or being a mom. Nothing else. No career allowed. Her career, you know, that there was the thought of going to school. You don't need to go to school because your job in life, your placement in culture and society, your value as a human being, if that's even what you want to describe yourself, again, playing into the cultural norms, is just bearing children. Now, here's the thing. The tendency in today's culture, progressive culture, be like, well, we've got to figure it out. And ancient culture and traditional culture is so oppressive. The problem is, is to say that from this context of omitting the fact that progressive society is not oppressive at all. What I would argue, it's radically uh, oppressive as well. The, the, the pressures that come with having to bear the weight of looking a particular way, of having to fit in a particular size of jeans or skirt or to have a particular body image or to have a face that looks absolutely beautiful all the time, that's Instagram ready, constantly. That's not oppressive. Of course it's oppressive. Of course it's oppressive. Again, don't get hung up in chronological snobbery. Each one of these things, and my my suggestion to you, is every culture, whether it's ancient, traditional, or progressive, all of them, unless it involves a recognition of King Jesus as Lord over all, every one of them will have their variant form of oppression and destructiveness upon itself. All of them. Every single one of them. So, that being said, I want to just begin to look at this now and think about this. Now, there's a gal by the name of Jessica Valenti. I read her book uh, recently called Sex Object. She's not a Christian to my knowledge. She describes herself as a pretty extreme uh, liberal feminist, and she describes this. She rightly summarized by saying, what has become all too clear is that we females often appear to only be here for males' enjoyment. Here's her perspective. She grew up in New York City. Uh, her stories, uh, her memoirs are... are deeply saddening to me honestly like many times just reading her stories just just resonated in a deep hollow sad type of a way just realizing the way she grew up having to be subjected to a variety of male sexual abuse and assaults and language and so on and so forth the point of the matter is this is her her summary as she would see it like the the tendency is to kind of assume that this is the situation this is the case now in response to sexism throughout history, uh, especially in the context of the Enlightenment, uh, was a new movement that was birthed, uh, known as, or later known as, feminism. And there's different waves of feminism. There's first, second, third wave of feminism. One of the questions that someone had asked me uh, uh, last uh, sermon on the thing that I was talking about uh, is, you know, is, is feminism, you know, Wicked, or of uh, the devil, or you know, origin and it depends upon how you define feminism. If if feminism is uh, really a, a way of a, a woman standing up and having a voice to say, look, we are not uh, inhuman. We are, we are we are human beings. Then then in a sense that yeah yeah that's. But sometimes, there are, again, there are a variety of forms of feminism that kind of lead to, there's a recent book I'm probably going to be picking up recently and read, uh, called Alpha Female, which there are a variety of it, where females oftentimes in response or overreaction perhaps to the types of oppression and destructiveness and destructive behaviors that have been thrown at them have responded in ways that go to an entirely different realm as well. But here's a point that I would make is there is a variety of forms of feminism that has respond, responded to the types of sexism within culture and society at large. But the, especially the first wave of feminism basically fought for these variety of things. Uh, equal rights uh, within employment, education, property, owning property, actually owning property. It was, it was for a long time when we were actually we're not allowed to even own property. So if her husband died and she lived in the house, she did not have any right to actually keep that property as well as suffrage, otherwise known as uh, voting rights. So think about this. for It wasn't long ago that women did not even have the right to vote. Now, these are the types of things that, for the most part, uh, uh, there have been these indifferences or or these uh, these disparities of trying to figure out ways to bridge these gaps. So here's the point that I would make. So sexism in society uh, abounds. And here's some statistics. These were taken from the UN. Um, so obviously, these are not just simply uh, United States. Uh, it's kind of bigger, broader. So um, someone had also sent me uh, one of those messages saying uh, if, if one in three suffer abuse at home, that means that one in three within the context here are, are actually being abused at home. Um, and again, I, th- I think most statistics need to be adjusted according to you know, where you live, the types of circumstances, and so on and so forth. But these are more generalized statistics. I'll go through them real quickly, and we'll move on. Uh, 15 to 45% more likely to be married uh, or die from male violence than cancer, malaria, war combined. Um, so think about that. If, 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 uh, if within the combination of all those things, one in three face abuse at home. Up to 70% are killed, that are killed, are done so by male partners, spouses, and male relatives. So think about that. Within the context of a, of a man, if a man were to suffer, uh, you know, a homicide and was put to death, killed by somebody. Um, if, if that happened for a woman, 70% of the occasions if a woman were to be killed, uh, she would be killed within the context of these statistics by somebody that was a man in her life that knew her closely. Boyfriend, a husband, uh, relative, so on and so forth. So it's just kind of a staggering number. Um, adult women... Uh, account for almost half of all human trafficking victims detected globally. Women and girls together account for about 70% uh, with girls representing two-thirds uh, child trafficking victims. So again, the, the reality is these, these are again these are just statistics I lifted from the UN website as well as um, some other websites. But So the fact is that we see this is a problem within culture and society at large. So what I want to try to do now, next, kind of move on to the next thing, is to try to understand a little bit of the, what I, I see as the problem that's beneath the problem. So uh, next slide, right here, sorry, is there's a gal by the name of Dr. Diane Landberg. Um, I recently was uh, uh, introduced to her. A friend of mine actually sent me a message by her. You can Google her or find her on YouTube. Uh, she's a Christian. She actually uh, uh, has a psychiatric, best uh, uh, psychology as a major, Been doing that for 37 years, practice, so I was looking for word. And she's pretty an amazing woman, has a lot of insight on this and a lot of years of of history on this. She basically breaks this down that the issue has to do with power and how we view power, how we recognize power, how we understand where power comes from. And one of the things she says in this message that you can find on YouTube is called Leadership, Power, and Authority in the Church and Home. I would recommend, highly recommend, if you are in any form of a, especially if you're a male leading a Bible study, you're at home, you're, you, know, you have kids, or your dad, um, listen to this, and just take time and listen to it, think about it, pray through it, she's got some amazing things to consider and to throw out. Um, she basically describes every human being, we all, every one of us, in this room, we have power, every one of us, we all have some degree, some level of power. Now many of us, um, we wouldn't necessarily see that we have power, because maybe your sphere of influence or power is not that very large. Or sometimes you might oftentimes feel powerless. So let's say, for example, if you're a mom, you've got three kids. You might oftentimes, and they're young kids, let's say under four, right? Three kids under four. You might oftentimes feel extremely, excruciatingly powerless, all right? They're winning the battle. These little minions are constantly having a one-up on you, and you always feel powerless around them. So the tendency is oftentimes in moments of weakness, and we become vulnerable, in moments of weakness slash vulnerability, uh, we don't lose the connection to our power base. Power's still there, but we are oftentimes more prone to abuse the power. So when mom you know, is, is tired and frustrated and at her wit's end because kids are not listening, uh, and she's vulnerable and weak, and she might say something or snap. You know, we all have stories probably from our mom or our dad when they were at their wit's end and they said something, and it was at a moment of weakness that their power was exerted in such a way where it was, it was hurtful. It brought pain, deep pain deep wounds upon our souls. So she describes five different types of power. One, physical, obviously just physique, physical, verbal, how you one speak. Some people have the ability to talk. They can uh, argue really well. They're very gifted at being able at polemics and discussion and talking, monologue and whatnot. Um, they can oftentimes overpower the conversation. So if you're talking with somebody like that, they can overpower you with their argumentation, with their ability for rhetoric and talking and so on and so forth. Um, there are often is various forms of exerting power um, emotional power this is kind of the idea of sometimes even moodiness um, just you know for, uh, you know airing our dirty laundry like this, this is probably me probably this this fits me pretty well emotional i can sometimes be emotional and moody and you know, I, I have an amazing wife that's such an incredibly gifted and graceful and loving woman that oftentimes helps me work through this. And so we're going on 26 years of marriage, by the way, so it's, it's, uh, it's good. So it means we're still working it out, and it's awesome. Um, I'm very fortunate. Um, but emotional, the the using emotion to kind of manipu- manipulate. Intellectual power, this is somebody that might have, a, you know, lots of uh, letters behind their name. They're very smart, maybe theologically oriented or thinker. Um, somebody that's really gifted, you know, in coding or, uh, you know, intrinsic types of technical language and concepts and ideologies, and they can oftentimes overpower or manipulate you based upon their intellectual superiority or positional. This is somebody that might have a, you know, CEO of a company or somebody that's like, you know, upper management or like, you know, know, assistant to the assistant manager like Dwight Schrute, you know, (laughs) someone that has some (laughs) level of, of positional power, thinks they have positional power, and they exert that positional power over you to, to manipulate and work and destroy and uh, be disruptive. So uh, I think the problem beneath the problem uh, is uh, power uh, and how power is, is oftentimes misused. Um, next slide. is She basically uh, go, goes on with this, in this message to describe that there's three abuses to, or three facets to the abuse of power, and she uh, lays them out this way. That there's self-deception... And within this context, uh, there's a tendency to oftentimes deceive ourselves, to sometimes justify, to say, well, the reason why I'm acting this way is because you know I'm tired, because I'm entitled, or because I've done all this amazing stuff, or I've worked really hard, and so therefore, that's why I'm moody, or because I'm Irish, or because of whatever. We have these excuses that we throw out, and we justify it. We justify it. And she basically describes that it's, it's, it's a form of self-deception, Rather than allowing the light of God's word to penetrate our souls, we, we uh, uh, create kind of this opaque reality where we don't allow the light of God's word and God's Holy Spirit to begin to penetrate, so we uh, live in a form of self-deception. Secondly, she describes deception of others, whereby our self-deception then begins to lead upon the deception of others, where we deceive others to say things like the reason why... Uh, this happened, a reason why I'm grumpy, a reason why I'm angry, a reason why a hole was punched in the wall, because you did or failed to do X, Y, and Z. And, and it begins to lead to the final one where she describes coercion and manipulation, which is uh, the way this plays out. And they're all forms, variant forms of abuse of power. And if you think about this in the context of sexism or even other, other form of like ism, racism, this is kind of what happens. Um, it's an abuse of power. So, next slide, I want to move on to the third thing, which is God in the voiceless. And this is where I want to bring this home to think about uh, carefully how Scripture addresses and begins to speak about this. Because one of the big, constant, ongoing critiques um, modern liberal progressives oftentimes make, um, that, that, that cough was real, not like <coughs> fake, it was a real cough, sorry, it probably means I need water. Um, I'm serious. It was it was real. One of the things that oftentimes modern progressive liberals have a tendency to oftentimes do is to say the Bible is very uh, regressive and supports a hierarchical and uh, a system or a patriarchal system that was destructive to, uh, to, to to females or other races. Now there is some truth to that, but At the end of the day, what it does not uh, completely address is how God is seeking to break into these patriarchal and oppressive systems and bring forth life. And that's the story of the Bible. From the very beginning to the very end, is God breaking into the various darkness. In the Bible context, it's this ancient form of patriarchal society and male oppression upon other women and so on and so forth, even children. And what we see is God breaking through, God becoming a voice for the voiceless. That's what we see all throughout Scripture, not just in some dark corners of the Bible, but all throughout Scripture. And to, to prove this, I want to just use two passages from the Old Testament and one from the New to try to underscore this to just so that you can see this. So why don't you turn real quick to the book of Genesis chapter 29. I'll read some of these passages. Genesis 29, if you want to turn forward real quick so we can save time to Luke chapter 13, you can just keep your finger there as well, and we'll go back and forth, or go uh, from one to the next. So Genesis 29, the backstory to this is, uh, there's a, the, God basically was breaking into humanity uh, to bring forth life through the unfolding drama that would ultimately end up in Jesus coming to this world. To do that, God uh, needed a, a people group. And this people group that God chose was the nation of Israel, beginning with Abraham. Abraham, if you're familiar with the story, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You remember, and I'm one of them. Anyways, I want to sing that. But then it goes on, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Um, And all of the family lineage of the people of Israel was pretty dysfunctional, pretty broken, pretty messed up. But again, the storyline is not to focus on the brokenness, but to focus on God breaking in the midst of the brokenness and shining forth brightly. So, we come to the story of Jacob, and Jacob uh, gets married. Now, he thinks he's originally getting married to this girl by the name of Rachel. Um, his father-in-law does these crazy one-two trick, and bas- basically, rather than him marrying Rachel, he ends up uh, marrying this girl by the name of Leah, as Rachel's sister. She's not as good-looking. She's older, and Rachel's kind of stuck with her. So he can't like divorce her. He's like, I've got I to deal with her. Again, uh, be careful not to criticize or judge this ancient culture. Don't don't have chronological snobbery. Just let the story be what the story is, and watch God break through. Okay, that's that's what I was proposed. So uh, you can imagine. Um, th- so this this kind of reads like a really bad episode of Sister Wives. It is. So this is total polygamy at its as worst. It's one of the reasons why the Bible actually does not support polygamy, all right? So if you ever wondered, like, the Bible supports polygamy. It actually does not support polygamy, not at all. It recognizes the fact that it was a part of the culture, and even in the midst of this fully dysfunctional form of marriage, God was still breaking in, and God was still showing grace and kindness in the midst of it. So with that, this girl by the name of uh, Leah says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, uh, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now... Leah was married to Jacob, and she always felt unloved. So I just want you to enter into Leah's story for a moment, and just feel her grief, feel her loss, feel her sense of constant unloveliness. So again, in this ancient patriarchal society, your value as a woman was completely dependent upon your submission to the patriarchy, as well as your ability to have children. Those two things, as probably throwing a few others as well, but those two main things. So she was obviously able to have a lot of children, but she always felt unloved by, by, by her husband. And part of the reason is because he really loved Rachel. In fact, again, like I said, she didn't even like, sign up to actually get married to him. She kind of got married to him by way of trickery. So imagine your placement in that context. Imagine being Leah in the context where you're in this marriage where you never even know your place. You don't know if you're loved. You act fact probably convinced of the fact that you are not loved. You are nothing more than a sex object to your husband. Now, again, I don't want to paint Jacob out to be this entirely bad guy. He's a deeply dysfunctional and broken guy, but he does, nonetheless, do his patriarchal duty by way of taking care of her, and not divorcing her. So, that being said, he's a good guy. Good guy with bad inclinations, just like the rest of us. So, you guys ready to keep going? On? All right, let's go. I don't want to dig myself in a hole. Verse 32, and Leah Convinced. Let me let me finish this real quick. When the Lord saw that Leah had was hated, He opened her womb. God was doing something for Leah that she was incapable of doing. God opened her womb so that she could actually bear children. Now, in that culture, um, a woman's one of the greatest honors that a woman could actually incur upon herself is to give her husband a son. One of the greatest honors. Again, in that culture, it was just simply a way of demonstrating that that uh, the, the the line of that. Man, the patriarch is going to be able to be carried on from generation to generation by way of a male. And so she was able to give him because God watched and heard and saw her loneliness. And verse 32 says, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. And she said, Because my Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So you get this sense of incredible desperation incredible displacement, feeling, constantly wondering whether or not she's truly loved, and she keeps thinking that if I can just give my husband another child, another son, he will show love back to me, and it always fails, backfires. Imagine a desperation, and yet God keeps showing up in the passage, in the narrative, saying God opened her womb, God gave her this gift, God showed favor to her, God took care of her in the midst of this. Verse 33 says, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Next slide. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. Which, one side note, if you're familiar at all, with one of those most boring passages in the Bible called the genealogy, right? You know, Matthew, what, chapter 1? You read Matthew chapter 1, you're like, ah, this is so hard to read. If you ever took the time to actually read the genealogy, and you know, those loathed types of passages, you, you'll discover uh, this guy by the name of Judah, who's actually in this lineage, because this is God's way of saying, I have woven you into the story, that you have been forgotten, that you have been shunned, that you have been uh, uh, voiceless, I will speak on your behalf for you because I am the God of the voiceless. Powerful. Next slide. we Move on into the New Testament. And this is the story in the book of Luke, chapter 13, where Luke tells us the story of Jesus interacting with this uh, lady. It says, and there was a woman who had a dis- disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So, For whatever reason, this gal had some form of paralysis. Who knows exactly what it is, but whatever it was, she had a crooked back. She was not able to stand up straight. So imagine already, if you're a woman living in a man's territory, man's land, your uh, acceptability was based upon your ability to have children. And here, you can't even stand straight, let alone be desirable. This is a woman that would have been considered worthless within that culture. This is the story of Jesus interacting with those that culture and society says are worthless. Jesus says that he saw, he, uh, she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over to him and said, woman, this is amazing because this is Jesus searching for her. This is not her necessarily walking up to Jesus. This is Jesus actually aware of the needs of this woman, of the feeling of fragileness, the feelings of brokenness, the feeling of voicelessness. This is Jesus going out of his way to recognize who acknowledged the suffering and the pain, the grief, and the loss of this gal had no doubt with incurred within the cultural framework. And says, Jesus called to her and said, Woman, you are freed from the disability. This is Jesus. This is the heart of God. This is God's. Movement on behalf of those that have no voice. I want you to see that. Verse thirteen it says, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now, one other final thing to think about: that in that culture, rabbis, all right, teachers, leaders, think about it like a priest or someone who's a religious leader. Which no doubt Jesus had already um, been, you know, garnering this attention as a rabbinic leader, well respected, even though there were people that didn't like Jesus. You, as a rabbi, you would not touch. A woman, unless it was your wife. What's Jesus doing? He's literally pushing every cultural norm off the limits. And he's just simply saying, She's valuable. And his touch upon her was not dirty, not deprived, but it was full of healing and wholeness. This is this is who God is. This is how God moves. Next slide, as we wrap this little section up here, I'm done. It says, but the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus healed on a Sabbath. So obviously, we constantly see this pushback in the narrative of how the religious leaders, their main gripe, main complaint was that Jesus was not keeping tradition. And the tradition was something that they elevated. Talking about idolatry, they were elevating tradition over Christ Himself, over God Himself. And their elevation of tradition actually disallowed them to love. To care, to have compassion for those that were voiceless. You see how idolatry plays into our hearts and our lives, So it needs to be confessed and dealt with and allow Jesus to heal it. So these guys had this issue. And then verse 15 says, And the Lord answered and he said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to get water? You ought not, and, and ought not this woman who is a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed? from the bond on the Sabbath day. There's one of the final uh, phrases that Jesus used in here that's absolutely mind-boggling. All right? So in that culture, uh, if you were a male, again, in a patriarchal society, everybody knew who a, who, a, who a son of Abraham was. The phrase woman or daughter of Abraham just wasn't in play. It wasn't part of the nomenclature of the day. And I don't know if Jesus coined this or not. I'm not absolutely certain about that. But the fact of the matter is, is Jesus, again, breaks a cultural norm as a way of simply saying, you are not a nobody. You are not forsaken. You are not voiceless. You are not worthless. You are a daughter of Abraham. You have a place to belong. I want you to hear this, especially if you're a woman here that has suffered grief, pain, loss, Instruction underneath the hand of a man. I want you to at least envision, to think about, to consider the hand of God that reaches out and says, you have value, dignity, and worth. So, in closing, I want to finish this up. I want to think about godly men and the voiceless. And to do that, I want to read a passage and then I'll finish with some final thoughts and I'm done. Uh, Next slide. There's a passage uh, from an author by the name of Carolyn Cussis James. A few years ago, I did a teaching through the book of Ruth. Uh, She wrote this amazing book called The Gospel of Ruth, and I read it through it like twice because she's so good. Um, She wrote this, and it's pretty fantastic. So just listen to what she has to say, and I'll wrap it up. Um, God's rescue of the world depended on the courageous willingness of a young teenage girl and the radically, radically, think about this, the radically countercultural actions of a man. So... Uh, God's aim was to bring about salvation. How was God going to bring about salvation? We all know the answer, right? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Good job. So if you're ever wondering, like, what should I answer? If you say Jesus any time, like, chances are you're probably going to get it right. So, yes, Jesus is God's salvation in this earth. In order for that to happen, God was going to partner with human agents. In the context of this, it involved a, uh, a female and involved a willing man. Now, in order to do that within the cultural milieu of the day was to perhaps incur deep uh, problems for the girl. So, for example, she says this, the terms of Mary's involvement meant consenting to an out-of-wedlock pregnancy. Just Pause about that in a second, think about that. So if you show up in the midst of a community of men in a culture that deeply values purity and deeply values family image and family name, and here you are pregnant, you can incur upon yourself, as she goes on, Within the patriarchal world she inhabited, this decision could have shattered her life, expectations, future, and her safety. Next slide. But this is where the story takes a remarkable turn. Because Joseph's actions reveal the inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom in a man's heart. Even before Joseph learns the truth about Mary, he is determined to shield her from the shame his culture would assume she deserved. When he learns the truth, he throws his full weight behind God's calling on Mary and plays a decisive role to ensure her success and Jesus' safety. That first Christmas is a reminder that God, that when God has important work to do, he often doesn't choose a big, he doesn't often choose big shots, he chooses the unlikely, the marginal, and the obscure. Amen? Isn't that good? It's the same thing that Paul would say later on is that God chooses the weak of this world that confound the strong and the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. The idea is that God often, God has nothing but broken people to work with. And if we're going to be truly a community of Jesus people, we have to look at some of the broken areas in our culture and society in the lives of even our own context. And be careful to not get so caught up with some of the other cultural elements that are part of it, but to listen to the cries that God is going to listen to. And in the context here, for example, one of the ways, one of the roles that we can ask the question, again, all of this goes back to the subject of power. How do we use our power, the power that we've been given? How do we manage it? How do we steward the power that we've been given? And to try to rightly answer that question, and I think to answer it in a way that's ultimately productive rather than destructive is we have to think about power in a way that actually leads to life. And to do that, we have to look at the very gospel itself. To do that, I want to finish with this thought about the life of Jesus. So, last slide. This is actually not Philippians 3. It's actually Philippians 2, in case you're wondering. Uh, Someone pointed that out to me first. I was very thankful for that. Uh, I don't want to mislead you guys. But Philippians chapter 2 basically says this. In your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 6. Who being in the very nature God. Just think about that. When you think about who is God, who is God, what is God? God is the very, very essence of power himself. God is power. God is almighty. God is all powerful. And yet what we see about Jesus, that Jesus takes the power that is of God and not using it in a way that brings crushing or destruction or brokenness or adds oppression, but instead uses his power to lift oppression, to lift the crushing blows, to lift the shame, to lift the sin, to lift the offenses, to lift the brokenness, so that you and I who are crushed underneath the weight of these things can be given life. In other words, the way that God uses power is not to crush us, not to spill our blood, not at his expense, we're bled dry. God is not a vampire. God is a God that gives his blood for us so that we who are bled dry by the constant agonizing taunts and expectations and oppression of this world and the world systems, God comes and says, I will give you life because that's what I have to give by taking those things that are destroying life in you, from you, upon myself, and in a place to give you my life. He does this by taking our sin, our grief, our shame, our judgment. So that's what we see. In verse 6, he says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is Paul's way of saying the most shameful form destruction, our God was willing to take upon himself, so that we who bear constant destruction can be given life. This is how your God, the creator God, your maker God, uses power in the context of our brokenness. The gospel is always about good news. It's about God not abandoning us. It's not about God leveling good advice upon us, expecting us to somehow follow it, or demanding rules upon us that we cannot keep and constantly tapping his foot out of frustration over your failure. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's a God that says you cannot keep righteousness. You've failed, you've broken, you've incurred upon yourself defilement and brokenness, but I will come and I will lift that off of you and take it upon myself and in its place give you life. The gospel is always about invitation to trust this God with your entire life. So, I'm done. We're going to respond by singing, by partaking of communion, reminding ourselves of what God has done for us, and by praying, if you're here, for anything that's going on in your life, by doing business with God. It's about recognizing maybe there are circumstances in our lives that are full of brokenness. Maybe you have been the victim of deep brokenness. Maybe you've been the victimizer upon others of deep brokenness. It's an invitation to receive what God is offering, life. To turn from, to repent, to turn from sin, to turn from brokenness, to turn from these alliances that you have made with your own heart that have deceived you and misled you, to turn to the life that God offers. To receive, the way the Bible would say, the kingdom of God, the reign of God today. So I invite you to respond. Why don't we all stand, we'll sing. If you hear anything that you have going on in your life, you need prayer. There'll be some people up in the front. I'll be up in the front, sitting here on stage. We'd love to pray with you. Some rugs in the front if you just want to do business with God. Just confess sin, to worship Him, take His communion. So let's respond. I'll pray We'll respond. God, thank you for your great love. And we respond, God, in, in kind to you by saying thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for washing us, cleansing us. God, we want to be transformed by your great power and by your great love so that we can be a part of the healing and restoration and peace in this world in the lives of other people.